Hello and welcome, it's great to have your company. Another big show today, I look at Scott Morrison's last speech to Parliament. Why did he leave it so late to promote Judeo-Christian values? I talked to Brian Brown from the International Organisation for the Family about the global fight for life, marriage, family and freedom. I'll also get Brian's thoughts on what a second Trump presidency might mean. Kiralee Smith from Binary joins me to unpack explosive revelations that Melbourne's Child Gender Clinic is giving referrals for 15-year-old girls to have their breasts surgically removed so they can identify as boys. I kid you not, it's a big story that the mainstream media are continuing to ignore. And are microscopic human embryos left over from IVF procedures part of the human family and worthy of our protection? Dr David Van Gend will help navigate this ethical issue. All that and more, don't touch that dial. You don't need to share my Christian faith to appreciate the virtue of human rights. I'm not suggesting you do. But equally, we should be careful about diminishing the influence and the voice of Judeo-Christian faith in our Western society, as doing so risks our society drifting into a valueless void. In that world, there is nothing to stand on. There is nothing to hold on to. And the authoritarians and autocrats win. While never afraid to talk about his personal Christian faith, Scott Morrison used his valedictory address to Parliament this week to call for the nation to return to its Judeo-Christian roots. That's obviously a good and necessary thing if Australia is to find its way out of its current political and cultural mess, something even the Australian newspaper's Paul Kelly acknowledged. But what is perplexing is that Morrison had 17 years, including three as Prime Minister, to champion these values. Paul Kelly wrote the following. Why only now does he talk in this way about his deepest beliefs? And if he had, wouldn't he have been more successful? Well, it's hard to disagree with that analysis. Instead, time and time again, Morrison let down Christians and conservatives who thought his faith might translate into public and political advocacy for the values he now calls the nation back to. After all, the left, whether they be Greens, Teals, Labor, or the big leftist cohort strangely named moderates within the Liberal Party, they argue for their values with religious fervor every day. This like-minded cross-party quad believes in the climate cult, that children's gender takes on a mystical rather than biological dimension, and that the sacrifice of unborn babies for the sexual liberation of men is a sacred ritual that must not be impeded. Challenge any of these assumptions behind these modern shibboleths in the parliament or in the public square, and great wrath will descend upon the challenger. That possibly explains why there is so little debate on these culture-defining issues. It explains Morrison's silence and even acquiescence during his political career. The biggest and most far-reaching social change that happened on Morrison's watch was the redefinition of marriage, which abolished in law the gender diversity requirement for society's most important institution. Degendering marriage has had massive consequences for children who are now required to miss out on the love of a mother or father. It has turbocharged the attack on children's biological gender, trashed the ability to speak freely about gender and marriage and has all but destroyed religion freedom. Yet apart from making a public statement in support of keeping the definition of marriage intact, Morrison then set, sat out of the three-month plebiscite campaign back in 2017, leaving the fight for others. 
As the most senior pro-marriage and openly Christian member of the then Turnbull government, he squibbed it. Not so Morrison's cabinet colleagues like Christopher Pine and Malcolm Turnbull, who fought hard for the yes side. Now, in 2023, there was no guarantee that the voice referendum could be won for the no case. In fact, the yes case were the clear favourites for the same reason the yes campaign in the 2017 marriage plebiscite was expected to win. But that didn't stop Senator, Senator Jacinta Nampajimpa Price standing up and putting everything on the line for what was right, even when her leader, Peter Dutton, was unsure. Courage begat courage and public advocacy convinced Australians that the elites were wrong. Now, the 2017 marriage campaign lacked such a political figure fighting the radical elites. Morrison had shown courage as shadow immigration minister and, as, and then again as immigration minister in stopping the boats, which were fuelled by the deadly people smugglers. But Morrison couldn't find the resolve to fight for the rights of children to know the love, wherever possible, of both their biological mother and father. Protections for freedom of speech and freedom of religion could not be legislated when he was Prime Minister, with five of Morrison's own Liberals voting against his attempt to fix what was broken by the change to marriage law. Now, same-sex marriage activists like the Liberals Tim Wilson and the New South Wales politician Alex Greenwich are pushing for commercial surrogacy so that gay married men can rent women's wombs and purchase babies. This is the great unfinished project of the same-sex marriage debate. If only Morrison had fought for Judeo-Christian values. His speech this week mentions the Judeo-Christian idea of human dignity, yet he put his prime ministerial signature on a letter supporting Australia's abortion to birth laws, the ultimate affront to human dignity. When former Nationals MP George Christensen was fighting to get a bill passed to require medical assistance to be rendered to babies born alive after botched abortions, yes folks, this really happens in Australia, Morrison wrote back to Christensen, fobbing him off to the then Health Minister Greg Hunt. But Morrison's letter contained a defence of abortion, which so disgusted Christensen that he published it on social media. In the letter, Morrison states that his government supports reproductive and sexual services. These are euphemisms for killing unborn babies. The letter says, and I quote, we continue to work with states and territories on the availability of safe and legal abortion Australia wide. Morrison then went on to brag about how proud he was that Australia's overseas aid helps export abortion to women in poor countries. When I reposted the letter on my Facebook page, I received an angry phone call at 9pm one evening from one of Morrison's cabinet colleagues and prayer partners, Stuart Robert. I said that if the Prime Minister does not believe what is in his letter, he should correct the record. That is not going to happen, Robert said to me. Now, when City Point Christian College followed the recommendations of the Ruddock Commission into Religious Freedom and published its policy on marriage and gender so that girls could be protected from the encroachment in their sports and private spaces from males identifying as females at school, Morrison threw the college under the bus. I don't support that, he said on radio. 
In the lead up to the 2022 election, Morrison had two strong female candidates, Catherine Deves and Senator Claire Chandler, fighting to save girls and women's sports from males identifying as females demanding access to their sports. Morrison, when questioned, said his government had no plans to save women's sport. The bus was quite literally getting a big workout. Now, silence in the face of evil is evil, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said. I'm not sure where that puts calculated acquiescence. When Morrison gave his maiden speech to Parliament 17 years ago, he brilliantly said, and I quote, Australia is not a secular country, it is a free country. This is a nation where you have the freedom to follow any belief system you choose. Well, sadly, this is no longer true for those who refuse to bow to the LGBTIQA plus political ideology on gender and marriage and so many other issues. Freedom must be fought for. It requires vigilance. 17 years on, Australia is less free, more secular, and as a result, less tolerant. If Australia is to rediscover its Judeo-Christian values and undergo what is a necessary course correction, it will require courageous parliamentarians who will fight for the values with the same fervour we see from the Green, Teal, Labor, Leftist, Liberal quad. It is politicians like ScoMo that are driving force behind the Family First Party project. On Sunday, the Prime Minister of Hungary announced plans to exempt women with four or more children from income tax for the rest of their lives. When you look at the, the the dance that occurred earlier and you see the joy and beauty of a man and a woman and a child, how can your heart not be moved? Well, the voice you just heard there is my next guest. He's a key leader in the global fight to protect marriage and family from the relentless forces that are working to undermine them. Brian Brown is the president of the International Organization for the Family and the convener of the incredibly important World Congress of Families conferences. These are major international public events to unite and equip leaders, organizations and families to affirm, celebrate and defend the natural family. Brian joins me now from Philadelphia in the United States. Brian and it's so good to have you on the program. Welcome. It's great to be with you again. Brian, uh, you've been a leader for many, many years on the world stage, bringing presidents, prime ministers and key lawmakers together uh, with policy experts and activists to promote the family. What's your sense of where things sit here in 2024? Is the pro-family agenda making progress or are we still on the back foot? Well, that's a great question. I feel like we're stuck in a Dickens novel uh, and we're on repeat because it's the the worst of times and the best of times in a certain way. Uh, unfortunately, everyone's aware of all of the uh, uh, all of the negatives that we see around the world with the decline in marriage, the breakdown of the family, the imposition of uh, same sex marriage on countries, usually through the courts, the breakdown of law that accompanies the uh, judiciary taking control 
of key decisions in democracies. All of this people have pointed to uh, the transgender uh, moment. I think now that's the biggest issue that people are sort of waking up to and realizing how bad things have gotten that a culture and a society and a nation can't even sort out what a man and a woman is. So on that uh, level, it's bad. Uh, it's very bad. But at the same time, it, it's it's very interesting that in the last uh, 10 years or so, I think people have started to wake up uh, and not just sort of on our side, our fellow Christians, um, people of faith. Uh, you increasingly have people like Elon Musk saying this is insane. <laughs> I mean, you have mainstream people, big leaders saying what is going on, especially on the transgender issue. Uh, so, We've also seen leaders that you might not have expected 15 or 20 years ago, uh, supporters of uh, the family, pro-life, pro-family uh, activists that have become leaders of countries. Uh, Lyle, you were with me uh, at the World Congress of Fam Families in Hungary. Our dear friend, Catalin uh, uh, Novak, became Minister of Families, president. She just stepped down. But... I don't think anyone would have predicted that. Georgia Maloney, hmm. uh, I think, came to the fore with her speech in Verona. Uh, her party was a very small party, and and now she, uh, you know, leads a nation. And hmm. and so I think that we're seeing an increasing realization that things have gone too far. But the problem is that many of those things that we predicted with the same-sex marriage fight, for example, have happened. Hmm. And it's even worse than yeah. some of our predictions. And if people would have listened to us then, it, we would be in a much, much, much better place. I, I think that none of this was inevitable. It required people uh, to stand up, especially, I will say, religious leaders. I think uh, there was a lot of failure on the job there. And, and so uh, we're, we're now in a place where it's worse and many of the things that we have predicted have come true and some things that people never even expected have come true. And people are wondering, you know, how do we stop this? Mm. Uh, so uh, that is, I think, the position we're in right now. Yeah, that's that's very well put, Brian. Um, you mentioned that the bright lights, obviously Elon Musk keeping free speech open. Uh, these leaders of countries like Viktor Orban and um, and uh, the Italian Prime Minister. We, we've got this new president of Argentina, Argentina, Harvey Millay. If I've pronounced his name wrong, probably not. Um, the counterattack on these people and the demonisation of them is quite intense, isn't it? Uh, so as soon as our side begins to have some leadership which pushes back, the counterattack comes uh, quite ferociously. How should we think about that when we see these heroes being demonized in the mainstream media? Well, number one, I think that there is often an impulse, especially with Christians, to desire a sort of uh, Christ-like savior figure to come, a Messiah-like figure to come and uh, and save us from these ills, uh, uh, that's not going to happen. So I think the number one thing that people need to understand is that when we have leaders that stand up on our side, they may not be perfect. They may have big, big flaws. But if they advance our policy issues, we should be able mm. to stand up and say they're doing a great job. So, for example, Donald Trump, uh, he, you know, 
even though he was far from perfect, and we were quite willing to call him out on this uh, and say, well, this this was a mistake or th- that was a mistake. At the same time, we were very clear in congratulating and being happy when, for example, the uh, Supreme Court justices that were appointed were clearly people that would interpret and not make up the law. And we knew if we got that, we had a good shot at overturning Roe. That has happened. We should be ecstatic. I mean, Mm. many of us never thought that would happen in our lifetime. Now, of course, there's been problems since then. There were always going to be problems. Our country had gotten accustomed to the idea that uh, a, a, a baby, if inconvenient, can just be done away with. Uh, any culture that gets accustomed to some lie like that, things are going to be difficult. We have to, I think, on one level, lower our expectations. And I hate to say this, but in the sense of you're not going to get perfection. We want someone who is holy. We want someone who is godly. But the fundamental reality, reality is that you don't always get everything you want. Mm. And we need to be willing to defend those people when the absolutely insane, I have to say it, uh, uh, attacks come. I mean, it is insane how uh, now we're at the point where there are not only media attacks, but legal attacks on people who stand up for life and truth. So you brought up uh, Victor Orban. Orban's perfect. You, you wrote, again, we've discussed this. I mean, years ago, people were saying he's a fascist, trying to shut down. And you say anything nice about Orban, you get attacked. Uh, again, I do think that someone like Elon Musk meeting with Catalan Novak, being willing to be uh, really fair in dealing with the, the great family policies coming out of Hungary, uh, that's what we need. So uh, we must defend those that stand for our policies, we must defend their actions, even if it's uncomfortable, even if there are other things that we may disagree with. I think mm. that that's something that we, we've got to do and we've got to do it quickly. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, Catalan Novak was recently here in Australia speaking at a wonderful Catholic uh, institution, Liberal Arts College, Campion College, and, and doing other events. Uh, we're obviously disappointed to see her depart the office of president of Hungary. Was she unfairly treated in your view? Do you have some insights you can share with us uh, on why she is now no longer the president? I think it was a very tough situation. When you're uh, the head of state and you make a decision for a pardon, you may not always have all of the facts. There were some pardons Trump did, or you may, may, may have the facts, but later on something more could come out that could show that uh, this person uh, had done even worse things than you knew. This is just the fundamental uh, reality, and this is why pardons are exceptions and not rules. Mm. So I, I, I would just say that I think that it's a, it, it's, it's a bad situation, but I think that um, President Novak handled it very, very well in, in being willing to step down if it was seen as something that was taking away from the government and admin- administration. Mm. I believe she really handled it like a true leader. So I don't know the details of the of the background to how the decision was made, all of that. All I know is that, you know, there was a pardon, the the there was widespread backlash on that pardon, and she was 
uh, President Novak was quite willing to step down rather than to take away from the Orban administration. Yeah, well, you know, thank you for sharing that. That's helpful because uh, we only have partial knowledge. She certainly has made a major contribution to the advancement of family policy and shown lawmakers what's possible with a bit of courage uh, in terms of preferencing uh, marriage and family and public policies. A lot to learn from her. Brian, apart from your global responsibilities, you're fighting the good fight uh, in the US through the National Organization of Marriage, and you re recently released a campaign called the NOT, the NOT campaign. Here's a snippet. This is what it's come to. They claim this is marriage, that this is a woman, that this is healthcare. Brian, is this the way out of the mess through public education campaigns like this? I think so. I think it's a key part of it. I think that for a long time, um, the, the common argument our side has, and again, I at times uh, embrace this argument, is that we should always um, only be positive, only talk about the good, only um, talk about uh, the the uh, the bright side of things. I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, but 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 there is sort of a tendency to say, well, whatever is negative, uh, we should not we shouldn't bring up. I don't think that's the case. I never really fully thought that was the case. Uh, you know, we have the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Ten Commandments uh, tell us what not to do. Uh, it's very simple in life uh, to, to look at, uh, we, we're allowed to do so much. It's, it's much easier to point to those things, hey, this is not right. This is not what we should do. This is not the reality. And I think we've gone so far that at this point, we need to confront people with the, with the stark choice you have. Either you believe that a man is a man or you believe a man could be anything that a man says he or she or whatever is. And we're at the point where we have, you know, 33 listed genders getting more and more and more, uh, you know, on Facebook. All of these absurdities have flown from have, have uh, you know, flown very quickly from changing the definition of marriage. And a lot of people don't want to say that. They want to fight the fight that they think they can win now. Hey, let's not talk about marriage. We lost that. Well, uh, yeah, uh, we lost it in the United States through the imposition of the courts. The people had voted repeatedly for the traditional definition of marriage. But I think that uh, belies a deeper misunderstanding. Uh, these sorts of issues are never fully won or lost. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a we have an obligation, especially as Christians, to speak truth in, in or out of season. Yeah, yeah. And we don't know what the future holds. But this this sort of Whig view of history that that progress means that wherever we are now uh, is really where we that all of history was building up to this. And if you oppose it, you're outside of history. Yeah. No, that's not right. And what we have seen is that people can change history. So. For us, the not campaign is to just lay it out there that reality, truth, logic tells us that a man and a man and a woman is a woman. Reality, truth says that a man and a man cannot be married, that a woman and a woman cannot be married. And so that's what we're focusing on. We're only one part of it. We need everything. We mm. need you know, uh, public education campaigns about the reality of what science 
says about when a human is a human, which clearly uh, is uh, at the point of conception is not, you know, uh, uh, a week before uh, birth. That's just some random uh, point that people have decided to pick. So we need so much, but this is our effort. And that is to say very clearly what marriage, what uh, a man and a woman, what a child is and is not. That's brilliant, Brian. I love your perspective. Um, just finally, I noticed the uh, wonderful picture of George Washington uh, hanging uh, just behind you there. And uh, I've been reading a, a history of your, it's John Adams, I'm told, sorry, um, but uh, nonetheless, one of the revolutionaries. But um, I'm reading a history of your revolution. And uh, I know that Washington often complained that his army never had enough gunpowder, didn't have enough uniforms, didn't have enough food, uh, supplies, all of these things. I'm sure you often feel like this uh, in your battle as as the revolutionary leaders like Adams and Washington felt, and yet you remain uh, on point. What's your advice, Brian, to people who uh, might feel weary in this battle? Well, I think we need to try and be happy warriors. Uh, We have been placed here for a reason. We are at this time and place for a reason. I don't know how you can go through life and not understand that there is a higher calling and purpose for us as human beings. And God exists and he's placed us here for a reason. We have a purpose. That gives our lives meaning. And that also means that you can't worry that much uh, about you know, what's coming next, what came in the past. All you can worry about is doing the best you can with what you have now. And so I think that uh, it's a, it's for me, it's a major blessing. And I know you view it the same way to be a part of these great fights. Sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. Sometimes we have more money than others as far as donations. And, and but we'll, whatever time we're at, we got to keep fighting. And I think you know, that is that is John Adams behind me. He, he said that, uh, you know, our government, the America, the, the United States government was made for a moral and religious people and it would do for no other. So when people try and tell you that our founders uh, were were uh, atheists and anyone who brings up God is uh, some Christian nationalist, well, John Adams is going to get thrown out the window, too. But I think that Adams went through everything you're saying in the in the revolution and he there were really bad times and he kept the faith and eventually uh, became a president of the United States, a tremendous impact on our country. So that's what we've got to try and do. Even when it's hard, pray, uh, work, and don't worry. Thank you so much, Brian. Well, you're certainly someone who's having a tremendous impact globally and giving many of us around the world great encouragement by your example and your relentlessness in this fight. Uh, Brian, really appreciate you giving of your time uh, to us today. Thank you. Great to see you, great to be on. Well, last week, the Supreme Court of Alabama ruled that frozen embryos left over from IVF procedures had the same legal rights as children and that wrongful death laws should be applied should they be killed. Now, my next guest is is well qualified to help us understand the implications of this ruling. David Van Gend is a GP from Toowoomba in Queensland. He's been involved in the public debate on pro-life issues for 30 years, and he speaks today as a pro-life advocate, not as a doctor. 
He has, be, he has briefed MPs in state and federal parliament on subjects like cloning, euthanasia, the abortion drug RU486, and in 2006 addressed a group of United States senators in Washington on stem cell research. That same year, the medical magazine Australian Doctor listed David as one of Australia's 50 most intriguing GPs. I'm pleased to call him a friend and I recorded this conversation with him earlier in the week. Well, David, it's fantastic to have you joining us today. Really appreciate your time. Uh, did the Alabama Supreme Court get it right in ruling that microscopic IVF embryos are part of the human family? Well, they did biologically and in their terms legally because there was nothing in their um, wrongful death of minors act that excluded the very youngest of the unborn children who were already included in their protections so it made sense legally it's fascinating culturally and ethically uh, i think that it's it's a great opportunity for people to think uh, again about the whole meaning of human life in its very earliest stages because biologically of course a human embryo is part of the human family Anyone who loves their offspring knows that in their heart. Uh, but biologically, we begin uh, on day one and we continue through to natural death as the same being, the same human existence, even though we continually change our appearance, our capacities. But I find what's most helpful, Lyle, is to think of what really happens on that first day of conception of a new being. Essentially, a new name is spoken, a name that's never existed before. It's a genetic name, a genetic identity, which takes a whole lifetime to be spoken, a whole lifetime to be expressed. And it's that identity which is our name. It is what and who we are. It's what makes us part of the human family. And we should treasure that. Uh, we shouldn't reach over and, and delete this character from our story by dropping it on the laboratory floor yeah. like happened in Alabama. Yeah, well, this is, of course, what happens in Australia. And I guess this ruling last week has brought this issue back into focus again because many couples are striving to conceive and have a family. And I think you and I you know, share uh, that desire and, and would want that for our friends who are childless and you as a GP, I know, deal with um, patients like this all the time. Mm. Um, is there an ethical way to go about uh, IVF that doesn't create excess embryos? Because in America alone, and I guess this is what's driven the Alabama decision, there are some millions of unused human embryos, which, mm. as you say, um, are a new life in Australia. Mm. There would probably there would be who knows how many. Mm. Um, how, how do we deal with the issue of IVF in mm. knowing what we know about the ethics? True. Um, this is the heart of it. Uh, for those people who are proceeding with IVF, they, they must assert their own values in this field. They do not have to allow the laboratories to create multiple embryos. They don't have to. Of course, the laboratories will want to because they want to get the best percentage outcome for their clients. They want a higher percentage of take-home babies. And if you make a whole lot of embryos and you pick and choose, male, female, quality, whatever looks best, you're giving the, the clients the best chance. Okay, but to do that is to imply that the embryo is material that we can 
uh, sift like material and dispose of like material, and that's a very big ethical call. Mm. Whereas parents who are going down this path can insist that no, no, any offspring that we conceive through this method of IVF must be given the same chance of life as any other offspring, must be treated with the same unconditional love and acceptance and welcome as any other offspring. So, uh, dear professor, dear doctor, um, thank you for your assistance, but when you help us to conceive and you conceive an embryo, it is to be put straight into the mother's womb, no questions asked. So what and does that look like practically, yes. David? Parents yeah, can do that, but it's very hard. It's very, yeah, okay. So mm -hmm. it's obviously a little harder because for, to make the process easy, because it's quite uh, an invasive and um, often traumatic and difficult process uh, for women, um, that's why they seem to create multiple excess embryos. This is why we have mm -hmm. such a large stock of mm -hmm. leftover embryos. You, you'd be advocating a process where, where you wouldn't create excess embryos, where every embryo would be implanted and given the yeah. chance of life. Um, does that then make the process more difficult for the family yeah. and the other trying to conceive? No doubt. No doubt. The percentage of effectiveness would drop, but you've got to weigh that against the keeping of that circle of love, keeping of the circle of unconditional welcome and acceptance for any little life that's conceived. That's the, that's the consideration. And remember, when IVF first came into existence, I think the first uh, IVF baby, Louise Brown, what was that, 1984, I think. But anyway, in the 80s, all the states in, in Australia held inquiries into the implications of this new technique. Mm. And one of the dominant findings and recommendations was this, whatever you do, do not allow freezing of embryos. Don't do it. You're buying an ethical nightmare. And they just went and did it anyway. And so you end up. With Why was that, David? Was that just because of utilitarianism? <laughs> was it? I can't. Uh, I can't read their motives, but in a way, it's just out of goodwill of wanting to have an efficient service. And if you don't really think that embryos matter, then uh, you know, to, to that extent, then there's no great ethical problem. So, can so I just you were say saying back in the 1980s, though, they, they yeah, recognised this would be a problem, and yeah, they said don't freeze, yeah. and that's extraordinary. I didn't know yeah. that. I don't think the public knows that that yeah. was this was foreseen when yeah. we first embarked on this journey. I think it was the Dimmock Review in Queensland, if I've got his name right. But so this was when I, my early dawn of awareness of all these matters. And it was actually a bill in 1986 where Senator Harradine, the late beloved Senator Brian Harradine of Tasmania, drew our attention to this. They were wanting to get permission to experiment on IVF embryos. Now, there's a beautiful insight in the Senate Committee report from 1986. Let me quote it to you. They said yeah, this. Please do. The concept of guardianship of the embryo. The concept of guardianship should be adopted as the most appropriate model to indicate the respect due to the embryo. Isn't that brilliant? Again, it's keeping this little semi-artificial creation who's sitting there in a, in a lab still part of the human family. The parents, the adults, the society are still guardians, not owners, not experimenters. We are guardians. So that was quite an insight from 1986. And it stayed the case right through to the stem cell cloning era of the early 2000s, that it was prohibited to experiment on human embryos, prohibited by the National Health Medical Research Council, Ethics Council. Well, this, this is important, David, because we went mm. from uh, saying we should 
we're, we're going to go down the IVF path in the 1980s, uh, but we mm. shouldn't allow the embryos to be frozen. That was discarded. Mm. Uh, then we got to the early 2000s and we suddenly found we've got uh, all these frozen embryos stored in laboratories all over Australia. And you'll remember this debate very well because John Howard was involved when he was mm. Prime Minister. You were one of the key people advocating for the rights mm. of human mm. life. But um, our, our federal parliament had a conscious vote and they agreed um, to allow these embryos, mm. which originally in 1986 we said shouldn't be allowed to be mm. frozen. Now we're trying to deal with the consequences. They allowed them through a parliamentary vote to be flushed down yep. the sinks of laboratories. And that's before ah. we get to the, the cloning yeah. and experimental debate that you were just about to touch on. David, unfortunately, mm. uh, that's all we've got time for today. But uh, I really appreciate you giving of your knowledge and expertise and helping unpack this deep ethical issue. And uh, yeah, thank you for the advocacy you've given over 30 or more years uh, in this space. You've really led the debate. And uh, I know it's difficult for you because um, you've often been criticised and ridiculed, uh, but you've always approached it with, from a scientific and an ethical point of view. And, of course, history will prove you right, even if <laughs> the politicians ignored you. <laughs> so mm, thanks again, David. That's the story of our life, Lyle. Well, it's great to have Kiralee Smith from Binary back today to talk about the latest in the war on girls and women that has been waged by LGBTIQA plus political activists. It's a war that is also being waged with the support of mainstream media and with the acquiescence of most Liberal and Labor politicians. Today's generation of silent politicians are all culpable and that's why we won't stop talking about this. Kiralee, welcome. Thanks for having me, Lyle. Kiralee, um, I have to ask you about this. Scott Morrison gave his valedictory speech as he exited the parliament this week. How do you view his record in the battle to protect girls and women from the march of the LGBTIQA plus gender fluid ideology? Yeah, not too well, actually, Lyle. Um, it's one thing to talk the talk. It's a whole other thing to walk the walk. And uh, he had a lot of opportunities to back up, you know, his supposed views on these things. And uh, often he would come out and, and actually oppose our views. Um, and when he had opportunities, um, I think you wrote about it really well, Lyle, saying that, you know, people like Catherine Deves and Claire Chandler, they really stepped up um, in his, you know, last few months and uh, year of being Prime Minister. And he refused to back them. Claire Chandler's bill uh, to save women's sports is a very reasonable bill. It's based on law, it's based on reality, it's based on facts. And uh, he was more than happy to, you know, push her out in front of the bus and not support her. So um, I don't have a lot of personal respect for him. And I think it's, I hope that it's a real wake up call to other politicians in the space um, that other politicians are able to be activists and, uh, you know, promote their ideology or their religious beliefs. And uh, so it's more than fine for those of us who have that Judeo-Christian ethic and basis for our uh, morality, our you know, that guides us and governs us. Uh, he could have been a lot more assertive in those things and I think that other politicians should do that and step into the gap because when there's a gap, someone will fill it and we'll end up with the Lydia Thorpes and, um, you know, people like that who really aren't contributing much to yeah. uh, the level of <laughs> politics yeah. in this country. They certainly aren't. Well said. Um, a big disappointment, uh, sadly, that Morrison was. Now, Kiralee, to Victoria, according to a mother of a 15-year-old girl who wants to identify as a boy, the Child Gender Clinic at the Royal Melbourne Children's Hospital will refer girls to surgeons willing to perform double mastectomies. The revelation was made by the mother 
uh, on a transgender support group online forum and reported by the incredible journalist Bernard Lane on his Substack. Now, the mother wrote, and I quote, Happy day today. Just been informed there's a surgeon that our gender clinic recommended here in Melbourne that will do top surgery on my 15-year-old son, i.e. her daughter. This will be a massive breakthrough for his mental health, etc. She goes on. Now, Kiralee, this is a huge story. It's not been reported by the mainstream media. Um, why, why? Again, we, we ask this question all the time. What more has to be done to get politicians to take action? Look, I think this really reveals the insidious um, agenda behind it all. Like, for one, a woman to celebrate the mutilation of her daughter uh, for the sake of something that, um, you know, there's obviously underlying issues that that girl needs to have addressed and cutting off her breasts, putting her at risk of major infections, uh, putting her in the pathway of a very early and destructive menopause is a really really terrible thing to do to another human being. And a 15-year-old cannot consent to that kind of level of permanent um, and, and making her a lifelong uh, permanent medical patient. It, it's just the mind boggles. Uh, we know that politicians and the media have come out in the past and said, this never happens, this never happens. Well, it does happen. Yep. We've stood our ground. We said it is happening and now there's proof. And Bernard Lane should be commended for his persistence in this area because he does excellent reporting. Yeah, he's absolutely incredible. And as you said, uh, politicians keep saying that uh, double mastectomies are not being done in the gender clinics on minors. And uh, the Victorian Health Minister, Marianne Thomas, uh, has been telling uh, the courageous Upper House MP, Moira Deeming, uh, in response to a question on notice that uh, Deeming put to her, and I think we've got this quote, um, Thomas writes, the Royal Melbourne Children's Hospital does not provide or refer children to surgical treatment. Now, uh, according to this mother of the 15-year-old girl, that's obviously not true. Uh, Thomas is either badly briefed or is covering up for the child gender clinics. Oh, what a shock. A politician might have lied. Like, <laughs> we're all surprised, aren't we? Um, that same clinic, Lyle, says on its website that puberty blockers are reversible, and we know that's not true. Yeah. We know that the effects of those are long-term. So I'm not surprised that either the, the clinic there or the politicians or both have lied to the media and to the public about this. But what's really distressing is that these young children are going to be permanently, irreversibly, catastrophically harmed and they're not taking any responsibility for this. They're deceiving people into saying it's not happening when in fact it is clear that it is happening and it must stop and there must be an inquiry into these practices to stop more children being put in harm's way. Well, well just on that issue of an inquiry, our news broke uh, just last night that the Australian Human Rights Commission is conducting an inquiry um, that seemed like a good thing, but then you look at the fine print, uh, it's actually an inquiry into the life experience of, of transgender people, not an inquiry into these gender clinics that are allegedly uh, cutting the breasts off perfectly healthy girls and, and giving them medications that make them sterile for, for life. Um, it's crazy, isn't it? I, I mean, the Human Rights Commission Maybe. is certainly not about human rights. 
No, that's right. And it's this uh, inquiry is very, very disturbing in that it uh, it excludes everybody from making a submission unless you are a transgender activist. They're the only ones who are allowed or will have submissions accepted. So, um, you know, there's this uh, undertone bias. They've pretty much drawn the conclusions before even conducting the inquiry, if you read the language of this inquiry and what they will take in submissions. And uh, it totally disregards the stress and uh, the the feelings that women and children have as this agenda just steamrolls over the top of all of us. So um, this is, you know, a taxpayer-funded, uh, you know, and it has a lot of power in this country and it, it does carry a lot of weight and uh, it, it's really disturbing. Thankfully, there is some pushback and I think there will be a growing amount of pushback. They can't do these things under the covers anymore and uh, we will expose it and we'll bring it into the light and uh, we will have a lot to say about it. No, absolutely. I mean, the terms of reference for the Australian Human Rights Commission's inquiry uh, target groups like Binary and, and Family First for spreading misinformation. So instead of going after the gender clinics which are harming the children, they're going after the people who are trying to expose them. Um, this is a crazy world of inverted reality that we live in. Um, Kiralee, politicians uh, like the Victorian Health Minister and, and others keep telling us that so-called gender-affirming care is needed because children who don't transition their gender will commit suicide. It's used as emotional blackmail against parents. But uh, you report on the Binary blog that new research from Finland debunks this. Correct. And it's something that, you know, we've suspected all along. And there has been studies to show that suicide either stays the same or increases after transition. But what this um, extensive study did reveal from Finland was that it is not uh, the fact of being um, trans-identified that causes uh, the suicide ideation. It is all of the underlying factors that cause the distress. And that distress is not being addressed by placing a child on drugs or offering them um, surgeries uh, or other uh, affirmation pathways. Um, so the distress that is leading to the suicidal thoughts is not being addressed. And that could be anything from being on um, the spectrum, from being uh, traumatised, abused, uh, depressed, and all of these things. And when those issues are not addressed, then of course, the suicide ideation is not going to be addressed. So again, children are being really harmed and neglected in this whole process for the sake of some activists that want, um, you know, some validation of, you know, their identification. And uh, it, it's really cruel. And in fact, I think criminal. And we're going to see a lot of lawsuits in the near future. Mm -hmm. um, Kiralee, the consequences for a, a woman losing her breast as a result of this LGBTIQA plus gender fluid ideology is of course catastrophic. Talk us through the recent courageous social media posts of a woman called Daisy Strongen. Uh, I think we've got some of her images on uh, to show. Oh, look, this is so heartbreaking, Lyle, but good on Daisy for sharing it and for being so courageous and brave. It was a very vulnerable moment for her. I believe it's her second child and she's um, feeding the, the child with a bottle because she had a double mastectomy when she was uh, young, thinking that she would be trans for life, in her own words, um, came to the realisation that that's not the fact, that she can't change sex, that no woman can ever become a man or vice versa. Uh, she's gone on to um, have a relationship 
and to give birth to two children, um, but unfortunately she cannot breastfeed these children. And so she's heartbroken and she wants to warn others of the very devastating effects of going down this pathway of not being fully informed in the process and uh, or being aware of the consequences of those actions. Uh, so very heartbreaking, but a very brave, courageous uh, woman who I'm sure will make a great mother because she has mm. such great insight into uh, what it is now to be a woman and to be a mother. Yeah, how many more terrible stories of bodily harm do we have to see before politicians will act? Um, speaking of politicians, over the weekend you were invited to attend a local Nationals Party branch meeting um, in your area. What happened? Look, this is really encouraging. <laughs> I've got a big smile on my face over this one. One of my neighbours has been a, uh, pretty much a lifelong Nationals member. He wanted to put forward a motion because um, I think you and I talked about last time that the words sex, male and female have been removed from the Sex Discrimination Act. So he said, well, let's uh, move it to put it back into the Act. And uh, uh, my local member, David Gillespie, was there. He's the federal member for LINE. And uh, the meeting was great. Uh, it's a federal electoral council meeting. I think that's what it's called. I might have it wrong. Uh, Bill moved the motion. I was able to speak to it as an observer and uh, it was accepted unanimously. So it will now go to the next level, progress through uh, where the state conference will get to uh, vote on that motion. And uh, David Gillespie, uh, he's a doctor and he is, I will say, one of the only politicians that ever answered me in the early days when I said, what is a woman? And he gave me the medical correct term of what a female is. And he stood up in that meeting and he said he's 100 uh, percent committed to this motion and to standing up for this reality. So very encouraging. And I hope that his courage will inspire courage in other politicians as well. Absolutely. And well, also, sorry, yeah. and, and, and inspire members of every political party. Yeah. I don't care what party you're with. Do the same thing. Yeah. Go and move a motion at your local branch meetings and let's get all the political parties on board because that's how we will get the change in the law. Couldn't agree more, Kiralee, and, and we need those politicians then to take that feedback from the grassroots into the party room and into the parliament. Um, good on David Gillespie. We'll certainly watch the progress of that motion with great interest. Kiralee, thanks again for being so generous with your time today. Thanks for having me, Lyle. Always a pleasure. Well, that's all we have time for today. Don't forget the Church and State Summit in Brisbane on March 8 and 9. Details are on your screen. I'll be there staffing a family first table and would love to say g'day. In the meantime, you can follow me on X at Lyle Shelton and there's plenty of political commentary on the Family First Party blog, familyfirstparty.org.au. Make sure you make ADHTV your go-to for common sense news and commentary from Australia's leading voices. Until next week, keep speaking up.